that we have focused on is the role of the body, not just the individual, in doing apologetics. And so um, it is easy for us to be um, easily outgunned when we go out alone. There was, when I was at uh, Matthew's OPC, for instance, one of the things that was often uh, part of our duties, because I was on this sort of security duty when I was there. I was a single guy. I didn't have a wife to sit down with her kids to um, control. Uh, Was uh, walk around the campus a couple times during the service just to make sure nobody was up to no good. And the deacon in charge at the time was a gentleman named Jim Guido. And his saying was, two is one and one is none. So if ever an incident arose, you immediately go and get uh, a gentleman who knows he's sort of on call if he needs to be, and you go together. So if someone comes on the campus of the church, you go get that guy, and then you go talk to him together. Uh, You'll notice in the scriptures that there was always a technique of going out two by two. One of the misnomers I think we often have in Scripture is that when we speak of the image of God in man, we speak only of the image of God in a person. When really what we find in a creator God is that the image of a three-personed personal God cannot be in any way fully represented by one human creature. But it is the society of the saints. It is the home. And if the home, father, mother, child, or the society of the saints, or just people dwelling in fellowship together, they are a better picture of the image of God. In fact, as we gear up, for this new series, which I will say, doing a Sunday school series on the covenant home feels like me trying to coach rugby. I've never played. I've watched three games in my life. Um, Whenever we do these Sunday school series, let us not think for a moment that when the pastor or the elders or a deacon teaches that they're doing so as experts, right? That's sort of a thing we're into these days, right? you got to listen to the experts. Um, the other day, there was an educator who was lamenting the fact that you have these parents that feel like they can teach their children, and they've never even gone to grad school. So how are they qualified to teach their own children? Henry's like, I don't know. We often sort of lean back on that logical fallacy, the the fallacy of expertise. Uh, And so when we are looking at what it looks like, when we are looking at what it looks like, um, you can tell this is not scripted. Uh, When we are examining what a covenant home looks like and how it functions, there is going to be an immense amount of personal experience, anecdotes, um, 
do as I say, not always as I have done. And we're going to be leaning on the grace and mercy of God. Parents are going to be constantly repenting to their children for problems, mistakes they've made. So we're looking forward to that. Um, We will have a more fleshed out outline for this. And I would imagine that all of the elders are going to be contributing to this. Uh, Because, for instance, I've never really parented in the pew. I've only been a helpless viewer of what my children are doing when I'm standing up uh, and behind the pew um, going, man, I really wish I could take my son out behind the woodshed right now, but I've got to finish this final point on my sermon, so maybe when we get home. You know, that kind of thing. I guess if the moment if the moment called for it, that might be that might be Yeah. I'll arrange we'll arrange a display later. Actually we won't even need to arrange it. It will happen. It's like when someone says, Don't pray for patience because the Lord may answer your prayer. The Lord will help you be patient. So as it relates to apologetics, we focused on Apologetics as a community. Because what really wins the world is the covenant community. It is the love that exists between the persons that are members of the church. In the same way that our families win the world, the greatest weapon that you have, I hate to say it, actually I don't hate to say it, I know that it's difficult. The greatest weapon that you have in the fight against unbelief is one another. Um, and as we go forth to fight, um, it, is, it is right for us to want for the goodness and the joy and the satisfaction that we often, though not always, experience as members of a covenant body to be seen by the world. Like, I wish they could, for a moment, glimpse something of how good it can be. Um, We were talking at the um, What's Brewing. You're all invited, What's Brewing. Uh, I think at this point we're just going to do once a month, Thursdays at 10 a.m. If that time is, we can try and add another time if we need to, but it needs to be during the day at some point. Um, I was pulling an example from um, a video that I was watching the other day on YouTube, and it was a video of a guitar instructor watching and critiquing a performance by a guy named Chris Stapleton, who's a country singer-songwriter, and a guy named Justin Timberlake, who I think all of you probably know who Justin Timberlake is. Was that Kevin? I will say this. He may have started in a boy band, but musically speaking, um, he's got some gifts. He may not use those gifts in the service of the kingdom, But God has gifted him. So the two of them are doing a concert. One is a Chris Stapleton song. The other is a Timberlake song. And they're doing one of those things that they call a mashup or something like that. And it's at the CMA, Country Music Awards. And it is one of those moments where you are watching. And Chris Stapleton's wife is there as well. She's singing sort of the female vocal backing part. And the three of them are singing. And I mean, they are in the zone, right? When 
Jordan shoots 60 points in a playoff game kind of zone. And the guy was commentating, it's in these moments where musicians, they've maybe rehearsed once or twice, maybe three times, and it comes together, and you never forget how all of the pieces come together, and there is that one glorious, harmonious moment. Now, we want church life to always feel that way. That's oftentimes the lie we even tell the world. Hey, if you come and join the church, it's like this sort of weird, you know, where everyone in a musical, they don't know each other, or they're all in a city, and then they start dancing and singing the same moves and singing, and you go, only in a musical does that happen, right? But there is something of that in the church. Worship is actually a non-artificial way of representing the unity that exists among the brethren. And the way in which that often happens is um, we are hearing the same word, whether it's the call to worship, the assurance of pardon, we are speaking the same words, and we are singing the same songs. Um, I made reference to this not long ago. It's really wonderful when you're not only singing the same songs, but you're singing different parts, and then those parts come together and they are more beautiful in the way that they harmoniously coincide. It's wonderful. Um, those moments are like a tonic for the soul. right? You may be terrible at golf, but every once in a while, you get on the green from 150 yards. And that's why you go back. Right? Those moments of glory that are only possible... In the Christian life, because God is at work by his Holy Spirit to unite our hearts together. And not only that, but it also takes a lot of work. Sometimes that work is fun. Ladies, y'all had a a tea. Um, The men had their equivalent of a women's tea that included other things Um, on Friday night. And, you know, the rest of the weekend I was just living the high life just that was wonderful uh it was a wonderful time of fellowship and it encourages me uh, to be more faithful in my calling not only as a pastor but as a father as a husband because i know that there are other men who are striving to do the same and they're watching and i'm watching them so when we look at what it looks like to win i'm like doing a another Sunday school lesson altogether. Homes that win the world are homes that are not perfect. They're not Stepford Wives type homes, if you know what I mean. But they are homes that are filled with hospitality and compassion and mercy because every member of that home understands that they are sinners saved by grace. So what does that look like? That's what we'll get to talk about. Now, apologetics. In the final talk, whatever you want to call it. Lecture just sounds way too, though that is what I'm doing because I'm doing most of the talking. I want to talk about two things that are not required in apologetics. The first is niceness. I say all that fun stuff to in turn what feels like niceness. And when I say niceness, what I mean is when I played basketball in high school, I was the same height that I am now. It's 20 pounds lighter. <laughs> Those were the good old days. <laughs> um, but in order to make a rebound, to get a rebound, 
at 5'6", you have to do things with your elbows that make an opening. And so I would get a lot of fouls, and I would hack off a lot of guys. In fact, I fouled out of many games because I wanted the ball, and I was going to get the rebound. And in order to get room either to go up or grab it and bring it down, this right here, can you do that now? You can do it now. So the rules have changed. Up Thank you. Thank you. I made sure I also hit people. <laughs> because everybody's going for it. Um, there, is, there, is a, there is a line between, was it Bill Lambeer, the face mask guy? Really obnoxious NBA ball player. And the guy who never goes after the ball. Who's, a, who's scared of the ball? There is, a, there is a, a good middle ground. So when I say niceness, I mean the guy that never actually goes for it. And when they're in dialogue with someone where there is disagreement, they're always trying not to offend. They're trying to be, the, the hot word nowadays is winsome. And they're sort of hedging their bets so that by being nice, they don't offend, and so they're not putting the other person off. So that they think that that's how you till the soil to plant the seed that is the word of God. Now, I would argue from personal experience, in the conversations that I've had with others, wherein I have been taught the most, and the lessons have sunk in the deepest, have always been by men who have spoken to me where they might say, now dress yourself like a man because I'm about to talk to you. You know what I mean? Now, there is a way to do this. We often do this with our children. Um, It isn't yelling necessarily, though sometimes volume is required, but it is clear heart talk, getting right to the heart of where the sin the rebellion, whatever that issue is. The other thing that is not necessary is an exhaustive knowledge of all the arguments against or contending against the principles of the faith. Now, I would also add to that, there are no new ideas. So it is possible to be better equipped than you realize if you are able to get to the underlying root cause of many theological errors. So if you remember, uh, Dan Brown wrote a series of books um, in which a character, I can't remember, it was played by Tom Hanks in the movies, but it was The Da Vinci Code, and then there was another one I think called Angels and Demons. And in it, he was promoting a kind of Gnostic spirituality. And there were a lot of Christians that were saying, oh, don't read those books. Or you need to be careful And I understand some of those warnings, and that is because people tend to read all books and they don't have a good filter, right? There's a lot of Christians that don't know how to eat the meat and spit out the bones, and that's because they've not been taught by their pastors what is good and what is wicked, what is true and what is false, or their parents or whomever, their teachers. But there are people going, how do we we argue against what he's spouting? This kind of quasi-Western spirituality. And a lot of theologians are going, it's just Gnosticism repackaged by 
Random House or whoever published. I don't know who published those books. Penguin or whomever. Penguin is a publisher, not just a bird. So we know what to do with the Gnostic heresy. And in fact, the Gnostic heresy is alive and well in our culture today. And that is a de-emphasizing of the flesh on one side or an over-emphasizing of the flesh because we disconnect our souls, that part that is immaterial but made by God that will endure forever, from that part that is temporary. Though our bodies will one day be raised, they will go into the ground. And when you separate that the body and the soul have been made by God, they're both loved by him, that he created both to work in harmony together, the Gnostics say, no, that's, that's not right. That salvation is releasing oneself from the flesh. In fact, if you're familiar with the idea of personhood theory. Personhood theory, and I've talked about it a little bit, it's at times difficult to define, but it basically amounts to that facts and values are not connected to one another. So there is science that says this is true, but there are also values that each person expresses that don't necessarily have to reflect true science. They can be true simply because you want them to be. This is the disconnect, though, that comes when you embrace a reality that divorces the human flesh, the human body, from the spiritual soul. So what is the scientific underpinning for that one idea, that we are all but matter? What lie, what cosmological Idea. That means idea, how we came to be. What underlies we are but matter? Evolution. Evolution. Evolutionary biology. We're just meat. You know, we're just meat. We're meat bags. And yet men know that that's not true. They understand that there's a part of them that cannot simply be boiled down to we are but matter. There's something else there. And so even in the unbeliever, there is an inescapable weight Lewis may call this the weight of glory he does deal with this uh, in his book Joe what's one mere Christianity that there is a kind of moral imperative that men feel because the law of God is written on their hearts and instead of surrendering to the law of God they come up with all kinds of ideas that explain or try to explain the connection between something of which they feel that they're more than just matter but they don't understand the relationship of those two things. And so they come up with all kinds of crazy ideas like Gnosticism. Now, as we go out into the world and we see those things lived out, there are people that we can pity, and we rightly ought to pity everyone to some degree, because they are lost without the word of God bearing fruit in their lives. They have not surrendered to the lordship of Christ Jesus. But one of the ways that we ought to think is not only... Lord, would you save them? But Lord, would you silence those who speak falsehood? Now that longing, that kind of speech, that kind of prayer and singing falls into the category of what we call imprecation. There are many psalms and other passages of scripture that we find that are called imprecatory psalms. We sing some of those. In fact, the psalms are filled with, Lord, let your glory be shown. 
in the salvation of the righteous and in the condemnation of the wicked. Revelation chapter 19 is is filled with that inevitability. And so what is an imprecation and how is it related to apologetics? Here is what I would say. When you go forth to do apologetics, you should be praying for two things. And they're not exclusive of one another, in a sense. You should pray that by the power of God's word, as you go forth and you speak truth, God would either use that word to bring about salvation or judgment. When I preach, two things are happening because God has guaranteed it. People are either being called more and more by the Spirit unto salvation or they are being judged. God is leveling a sentence against them through the standard of his word and by their continued rejection under that word. Do you follow me? It is not wrong in apologetics to seek both goals in a courtroom. The prosecutor, what is he endeavoring to do? To level charges against the one who is on the stand in order to get what verdict? Guilty. And in fact, if you and your apologetics are unwilling to bring the, the, the one who does not believe, we're talking about unbelievers here, let's say, to a position where they feel and understand that they are under the judgment of God, then you have not done your job well. Ray Comfort calls it dragging them across the law. And so what do you begin to do? You begin to ask them questions related to how they have offended a holy God. You are walking them through the sentence of death if they do not repent. Now, not every conversation is going to be like this, but when we think apologetics, we often think of what? We often think of defending the scriptures against bad theology or approaching unbelievers who may not be hostile. They're just not saved. They don't think God's thoughts. And so what we are in essence doing when we go to them, and I need you to realize that your apologetics will ultimately be ineffective if they don't understand that Christ demands worship. Not a little bit of space. Right? This happened with the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? And that whole, that whole discussion had to deal with what. What counts for goodness? And so he said, well, I did all of these things. He thought to some fashion and was not wrong that goodness is marked by obedience to the law of God. But when Christ gets to the marrow of the matter, which is his own heart, the rich young ruler walked away sad because he was not willing to give up that which is necessary to be one called a servant or a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who would give up to deny himself, to take up his cross and follow Christ, which is when Christ says, listen, listen to this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. To be enamored with the stuff of earth 
is it threatens your worship and devotion to Christ. doesn't mean you can't be rich. But you can't be like the rich man that said, Soul, take confidence in the stuff of the flesh. You can't build a tower to heaven. You can't save up for that day of death. All of it, all of it must be in service, whether you are wealthy or poor, to the Lordship of Christ. What did Christ do? He drug the man across the law and then revealed to that man where he fell short. Now, what is interesting in the Gospels is, of all the evangelists that have ever lived, Christ was highly ineffective, it seems. Even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, do you remember what it says, the people, how they responded? Christ raised a man who had been dead for days. And in reaction to the raising of the dead, John writes, and some believed. Some. Now, as it relates to an apologetics class, there are no bringing back people from the dead lessons. That's, my point is, even if you were to go out there into the, whatever the town square of Gastonia is, probably the Walmart parking lot now, that's like every town square, right? And you were to raise people from the dead. Or if you were, as I have discovered at Sam's, help people learn how to drive in a parking lot. <laughs> if they were to see someone who maybe had a heart attack in the parking lot of Sam's, and I were to walk out there and I were to say, get up and walk. Who would believe? Well, what is the actually, what is the theological, what is the biblical answer to that question? Who would actually believe on that day? Anybody? I surprised you with that question, sorry. Those whom the Father had called and sent the Spirit by applying the work of Christ and regenerated them on that day, or gives them the fruit of what that looks like. Those who had been appointed unto salvation. So, my point is, in all of this, what we are able to do is plead with God to reveal his wrath against unbelief. And one of the ways in which we reveal the wrath of God against unbelief is we speak of the wrath of God against those who do not believe to them. Yeah. Well, and, and success, if we want to, I think, use that word, which I think you can set success 
and faithfulness not as mutually exclusive, but one thing we can do, the other thing we cannot actually guarantee. So we can be faithful, which is what Paul did. And then we leave to the Lord like the sower, the parable of the sower, who threw all these seeds out. Some took root and actually became a living thing. But most of them did not. Either they fell upon soil that they could not get into or soil that grew up in thorny ground. Or things that would grow up for just a little while and then they, see they bore what might be called fruit but was in fact not fruit in keeping with repentance. There will be a number of responses. And Elliot, you're, it can be very discouraging. But what we can do is pray that the Lord would, as we bring them into that, well, what is manifested in many churches and has been manifested in many churches throughout time is, what will you do? Now, the way that it was sort of manifested in Arminian circles for years and probably is still in many churches is the aisle-walking moment. You know what I mean by that? I walked the aisle at 13 in a revival by Kelly Green. His name was Kelly Green, which is actually a color. I didn't know that at the time. That was his opening. I remember his opening. I'm Kelly Green. I'm a preacher, and I'm also a color. Whatever. So I walked the aisle. And at the time... My parents let me get rebaptized. They probably wouldn't let me do that now, but I'm a grown man. They wouldn't have the freedom to do that anyway. But I got saved, as they say. And I felt the weight of that preaching. In all apologetics, though, the goal isn't, hey, do we get to have coffee again? Do you still like me? Are we, can we be friends? Um, it is, are we contending for the lordship of Christ Jesus, even if that means that we are presenting to the other eternity and the stakes of it? And how we get eternal life and how we get eternal judgment. And if, if we lack a righteous zeal for the glory of God, then we will be more concerned with the fruit that is how people think about what we have said and not what God thinks about what we have said. Let us live for the glory of God in apologetics. Somehow I'm going to leave that there. It, it just doesn't feel right. I feel like there's so much more, but it is 12 o'clock. Are there any questions? So, in Return of the Jedi, who said that? When Luke left Dagobah, no, not Dagobah. Dagobah? Okay. He left having not finished his training, right? You thought I was going to use the Lord of the Rings illustration? I didn't. <laughs> he left Dagobah because his friends were in trouble, and Yoda said, don't leave. Now, so, huh? Oh, okay, so I'm not as much of a nerd as even I thought. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. 
Don't listen to anything I have to say for the rest of the... This is like apologetics. You're going to make mistakes. He, he left because obviously he sensed his... He left. This is the way you leave every apologetics class, right? This is how you go out into the world. You always feel like you wish you could have a little more training. But the training is in the doing, too. It is in going out and knowing who your audience is. You're obviously, if you're in a home, your first audience, as it were, your first group of people is your spouse and your children. And if you can't win your children, this is the illustration that Paul says to pastors, if you can't win the hearts of your kids, how do you win the hearts of a church? Yeah. That's right. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. Yoda always sort of like the old professor that's just done. He just disappears, fades into the background. Thanks, Alex. Um, <laughs> I was going rec- to was going to record this and send it out, but I think I may not do that now. Don't be afraid of going out and feeling like I'm not up to the task. Because when Christ sent the apostles out into the world, there was a little bit of, don't worry about what you're going to say. Now, that doesn't mean be wholly unequipped and unprepared. But you cannot equip for every single eventuality. Start and then see where it goes. And I mean that. And, and part of the reason I say that is because the kinds of people that most of us will talk to are even less capable of defending their unbelief than you are of your belief or of the truth and veracity of Scripture. I always see it as, like, you can't do any harm. It's already dead bodies, so... Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're sort of like the more... T- we're, we're like the, um, the, the first-year surgery residents... Cutting on dead bodies. Okay, if that helps you, I'm okay with that. All right. What do they say about empires? They don't die in a bang. They sort of dissipate into a whimper. Um, Welcome to apologetics. Um, Go forward and talk. Be jealous for the glory of God. Use God's word. Uh, We don't need pioneers. We don't need people with strange ideas. Know the word, speak the word, and be courageous. All right, we have kids that need to get in. Let me pray for us. Lord, bless us as we endeavor to go forth into all the world. Give us, Lord, give us what we are to say, not new revelation, but call to mind by your spirit, your word that has been laid down for every generation. And by that word, you bring life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.